are listening to The Art of Homemaking, and I'm your host, Sally Ann, bringing you conversations with experts in their fields to help us make our homes places we love. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Art of Homemaking, and today we're chatting with Annabelle Hickson. Annabelle is the founder and editor of Galar magazine. She started in journalism working for the Australian Annabelle married a pecan farmer and moved to the country where she lives with her children and her husband on the New South Wales-Queensland border. Galar magazine is about country Australia. It's refreshingly ad-free and filled with beautiful photography and well-written articles, often by Annabelle. The pages are a lovely matte finish and it really is a joy to read. Annabelle, what was your motivation for starting Galar magazine? Well, my motivation for starting Galar, it, it all, I guess it sort of goes back to I grew up in Sydney, really knowing nothing about regional Australia. I didn't, I, you know, an uncle with a farm and I did, I just knew nothing about it. And not only did I know nothing, I just never thought about it. I had, I was very ambitious. Um, I always thought my career would be city-based, just never sort of, crossed my mind to think about stuff out um, in the bush. And the sort of news, I guess, that did cut through to me um, was floods, fires, droughts, that kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, that looks pretty tough out there. So then, and I fell in love with a farmer and he lured me out west and all of a sudden I found myself living in regional Australia. And sure, we have droughts and we have fires and things like that, but what I didn't even think about was all the kind of opportunities, the creative, funny, smart people, everything like that. It, it was just such a eye-opening and surprising experience. And mm -hmm. I think that even though we have, you know, really sort of strong mythology about the bush in Australia, there are lots of people like me that are really kind of urban. You know, we're actually one of the most urbanised countries in the world. And, you know, more and more we're kind of losing that, link with with the bush so i am not the only one who know you know knew nothing about regional australia and i guess i wanted to start galar to sort of say oh look like look at this this isn't just a place of hardship this is a place of opportunity excitement diversity and yeah that's sort of that's kind of why so i guess it's to reflect all the great things going on in regional australia but also to sort of act as a bridge i guess between regional Australia and the people who don't have any connection to it. Annabelle, how did you go from that dream in your head to actually making it happen? Sometimes I don't really know how it happened, but, you know, like anything, it's just step by step. And I think what was amazing is that before I started this print magazine, I um, had published a book with Heidi Grant, you know, with a publisher. So I kind of just got a little introduction into the world of publishing. And I guess I saw that these publishers, they hire in amazing designers. They hire in sub-editors. They hire in experts. So mm -hmm. I guess I thought while I could have a crack at kind of assembling the stories myself, you know, using kind of my journalism experience, that kind of felt like a doable, a hard but doable thing. And then all this other. I could actually outsource to people who knew what they were doing. So I think uh, what really helped me take it from just an idea to something 
that existed was the sort of relief that I didn't have to know how to do every single element myself. I, I love that story that you talked about how someone just wrote to you and said, I want to give you some money up front to help you get started. <laughs> that must have been so encouraging. It was. You see, this is the, um, I guess there's a lot, tools like social media are really useful. They are not without problems, but they are very, very useful. So before I had even pressed print, you know, before this magazine existed um, and, and I had like an existing sort of audience uh, community, I guess, going on on Instagram. So before the magazine exists, I'd sort of spoken about the magazine. I had opened up pre-orders for the magazine, you know, so I could sort of test mm -hmm. the demand for it. And in that process, this amazing woman, Jen, came out of the blue. She said, I don't have deep pockets. I, I don't, this is not something I do every day, but I would like to give you, it was $5,000, $5,000 to put towards getting this magazine off the ground. And mm -hmm. I, money was certainly very helpful, but more than that, it was this, this sort of sense of support and this kind of vote of confidence. And, you know, it's pretty nerve wracking starting something new and you don't know if it's, you know, if it'll, it'll just laugh at it. Um, but yeah, that was a really moving and uh, like quite an important, I don't know, act of kindness. No, I think that's wonderful. And you must have had all kinds of fears about starting it. What, what do you think was your greatest fear, Annabelle? I think my greatest fear was just making something that wasn't very good. You know, mm -hmm. like I just... I didn't, I, I really wanted to make something great and beautiful and something that I felt proud of. And I guess I was just worried I wouldn't be able to pull it off. But mm. older I get, the more and more I realise that this sort of perfectionism um, is really dangerous and it can really hold you back. I mean, I've got friends who get nervous about making an Instagram post because they want to get that right, you know, and, and I just... I think we're all, maybe not all of us, I think a lot of us are just way too hard on ourselves and um, there's nothing wrong with failing. You know, and I think like while the first issue I put out I feel really proud of, I now look at it and realise there's things that I might have done differently. But I think sort of a willingness to put something out there and a willingness to fail is just the best way to keep going down a path to make something that is better. You know, the fear of failure can just stop things, but you cannot avoid failure in at least, you know, degrees. So yeah. I think you just, you know, you've just got to kind of feel the fear and do it anyway. I think that's very good advice. I don't know. You sort of think that people are going to judge you and, and care, but the reality is no one really cares. Like no yeah. one's really that. I mean, you know, of course, some people are interested and supportive, but everyone's worrying about their life. You know, it's... They're not sitting around waiting to judge what, what you decide to give a go or not. And when we first spoke, Annabelle, I was really keen for you to talk about your big flower arrangements and you said, actually, that's changed. Can you tell us how that's changed? Yeah, so a few years ago I was completely obsessed with, with sort of doing the flowers, you know, picking things, growing off the side of the road and making them look beautiful and kind of constructing these huge 
things coming out of the roof and uh, you know I would never go anywhere without a saw and secateurs in the car and it was my true obsession and, and it turned into a, a book that I mentioned before I was really um into it and now well I still think flowers and gardening and nature all that stuff is so beautiful it hasn't lost any of its beauty but I I feel like my priorities have shifted a little I think that um, you know, I, I guess I've sort of become a little bit disillusioned about sort of styling and things like that, especially if it's for an event or a gathering that you're having in your own house. You know, since when did we sort of think we had to be Martha Stewart or something like that? Like I, I sort of think um, that my obsession with flowers and then my sort of how-to book, well, well, I still think it's beautiful. I, I, I guess more important than like the placemats and the flower decorations I think is the sort of the people and the conversations that you might have with with these sorts of things and you know I think we've centered gatherings around things rather than around people and, and purpose so beautiful flowers beautiful plates beautiful that's all lovely but it's secondary I think to just coming together and, and meeting with people. And, I mean, for example, my mother-in-law throws the best parties out of anyone I've ever met, and she's not interested in cooking. She's not interested in elaborate flower displays. She's interested in bringing people together, having food, sure, and having, you know, things look nice, but having conversations and having fun and introducing people to different people. And I think that that's more important than any kind of, you know, I mean, even to the point too, sometimes you go to a sort of fancy event and they have these very elaborate flower decorations down the middle of the table that obscure yeah. the view of the person sitting on the other side. I mean, you know, sometimes these kind of things actually prevent connection, which is just crazy because yeah. they are necessary, I think. You are arranging flowers. What would be the key things to think about, Annabelle? Well, I mean, I've just so gone off the like formal, you know, arrangements. To me, mm. joy is whatever I can walk out the door and pick. So whatever's there's a lot of at the moment, you know. And I'm lucky; I live in the country. I have space and a garden. But if roses are going off, just pick a heap of roses and just kind of plonk them. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than just like a plonked bunch of a single kind of flower. And it's all about simplicity for me. And, and, and you know, if you're at a table, don't make the big thing so big you can't see who you're talking to. You know, just a little bud vases with a little single stem in each scattered down the table to me is more beautiful than any elaborate thing. And for me, there is no need to use flower foam I hate that stuff. It's bad for the environment. Just steer clear of it. You don't need it. You can, if you have to, you can bundle up a thing of chicken wire, you know, and that does the trick. And do you think that the whole thing about you changing your ideas about flowers, do you think that has stemmed from what we've been through with the whole pandemic and, you know, just us thinking about what's more valuable in life? General malaise with that kind of aspirational lifestyle stuff. I just kind of became uh, more and more cynical about it. And, I mean, I think m moving out here, like we're an hour away from a small town, so it's sort of quite 
isolated. I mean, as a girl who grew up in Sydney, it's isolated for me. And I think what it's taught me is how easy it is to do without things. You know, I can't just duck to the supermarket. If I feel like cooking a particular thing, I'm not going to drive into the supermarket to get the lamb chops or whatever, you know. So I, I've kind of, it's helped me learn how to make do, I guess, with what I've got and to sort of let go of thinking that there are specific things that you need. And, yeah, I guess with that, my sort of, this whole aspirational stuff, I've just become less and less interested in and I'm much more interested in doing things with what we've got and being creative with what you've got. I think you sort of just realise, I guess, how capable you can be, even in very small ways. You know, you can you can make something nice from what you have and you can I don't know, it's kind of there's some sort of empowering I think it's really healthy for you to sort of have a sense of being able to do something, be able to be creative. It, it's much better for you than just going off and outsourcing it or buying it, I think. You've mentioned how many magazines feature lifestyle that most of us can't have and how Galar isn't about having big budgets. There seems to be a real strength and authenticity, even a rawness to the Australian style that you depict in your magazine. What are you actually looking for, Annabelle, when you're selecting material for Galar? Yes, well, I'm not interested in trends. I'm not interested. And there are other magazines that are and they follow them and they do that really well. But I'm mm. not interested in trends. Um, you know, there's actually, I think, a really great magazine, although it's very different to Galar, is World of Interiors. You know, that, I think it's been around... I think it started the year I was born. So it's 40, 41 years old. And it's, you know, as other magazines crumble, it just powers on. And I think what they do really well is just steer clear of the trends. And they have a real sort of diversity of stories. You know, they be like castles on one page and like a shepherd's hut on the other. And and they, they treat their reader like their reader's smart. You know, I, I just think they're a really great... Um, a really great example of how a magazine can be. So even though Galar's premise is very different from the world of interiors, I, I, I sort of do what it's important to me that it's not about trends. It's not about styling. It's not about aspirational stuff or where you can buy these products. It's more about documenting. And I guess what I'm interested in documenting are, um, is creativity. So that could be someone with, you know, hu a huge budget living in this incredibly fancy house, or it could be someone living in a tent. You know, I'm, I'm, the, the creativity is what I'm looking for. Certainly beauty, um, innovation, diversity. You know, I want people who look different to me. I want people who are doing completely different things. I don't want it all to be about ag. Um, and then above all too, I want a bit of humour, you know, yes. like, Stuff nice can be so earnest and I just want a bit of humour. There's always been a fascination for magazines about country life. Why do you think that is, Annabelle? Well, it's interesting you say that there's a fascination. So, I mean, certainly 20 years ago, I wasn't reading anything that was about country life. You know, like, oh, maybe the occasional country style. Um, but... I think certainly now, I mean, maybe over in England, the mm. whole country seemed to have always, you know, loved country life. But, I mean, certainly from my perspective, there was a real falling out of country, well, in love with country life in Australia for a while and that 
you know, the brain drain from the bush and if you wanted to sort of have an amazing career, it'd have to be in the city. Um, but I feel like in the last five years that's really changing and it's almost this sort of renaissance of regional Australia and that was certainly accelerated by COVID. Um, you know, and, and I mean that just normalised uh, remote working, even little things like before COVID, you know, if we had to sign a document for the bank, we'd have to go in to the bank and sign it, even though it was really inconvenient. We lived so far away. Now that's all changed, you know, so it's, we can, everything is kind of uh, able, able to sort of be digital and remote stuff. So that's, you know, it's sort of amazing for regional Australia, but yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, there's this, you know, in these big brands, they, they have a kind of a category, like these sort of ma a marketing category that they target called aspirational heartland, <laughs> which, is, which is like, I guess, suburban and city people who aspire to this kind of country regional life. You know, that's like a category that, that they market to. Um, and I do feel like that category is growing. You know, the sort of brand of the bush has certainly had a real boost over the last few years. Um, I don't know why that is. I guess it's just we've reevaluated what's important, like space, freedom, health, you know, ability to work, lower real estate prices. It's all kind of all those things. Yeah. No, I think it's a really exciting time to be living in regional Australia just because it sort of feels cool again, you know, and it's it's... It is nice to live somewhere that, where other people wish they could live. <laughs> you know, instead of like 10 years ago, you know, people would come out here and say, why do you live here? What do you do here? You know, it was really, I don't know, but now I feel like it's shifted. What, what do you think are the most essential things that make your family home feel like a place you enjoy living in, Annabelle? Oh, my God. Okay, so domestic life, um, I am perplexed by it. I am perplexed by domestic life. I'm sort of the head of our domestic world, which is a shame because I'm not very good at it. I mean, I feel like, you know, the, like really I don't understand how everyone isn't talking about this every single day. Like, I don't know how to not drown in those boring, mundane, repetitive domestic duties. I just I've, I find it so hard to manage. And then on the flip side, in your home, that's where you have the most intimate relationships where, you know, you need to be your smartest and your, and I just, how to sort of reconcile those two together, the sort of mundane repetitive drudgery with, you know, this rich emotional life. I, I find it really, really hard to kind of, to, to sort of manage all that, that. So, you know, while I'd like my family home to be, you know, beautiful and lamps and and music and delicious smells. Like that's how I want it to be. The reality can often be very different and it can be really chaotic. Um, but what has sort of helped me feel less bad about that is I read somewhere and I can't actually remember who said it, but it was a very smart um, academic and she defined, home being, you know, creating a home as creating a place to learn. Mm. And I think that's me takes the pressure off so not creating a place that looks in a certain way but a place that's safe enough I guess where you and those who you share it with can just learn so I mean at the moment on on the kitchen table 
there's like the salt and the pepper and all that. And then there's this electric keyboard taking up, you know, at least a third of it. And while it kind of looks chaotic to me, that's where my daughter sits down and plays her, you know, little tunes in the afternoon. And, you know, that is more important to me than having everything all kind of pristine. Just wanted to ask you a little bit about your podcast with Gillian Bell, Dispatched to a Friend, because that's just the most delightful podcast. And I wondered if you'll be continuing with this. Well, Dispatched to a Friend is um, a casualty of me focusing on Galar, which is such a shame because it was a beautiful thing to do with Gillian. It was really lovely and yeah, since I started Galar, I just have been like a monster focused on it, which I think is, you know, sometimes you have to be to get things done. What's the best piece of advice you would give to those who are juggling a career and children and possibly in the country, which can have its, you know, other levels of difficulties? Yeah, it's... I think, well, something that I was really taken by when I first read about it, um, there is a doctor, he's a GP and I think also a psychiatrist, um, Dr. Winnicott in the 1950s. And you probably heard this, he, he coined this term, the good enough parent, which mm. is so liberating to me. And I guess he kind of argued that not being a perfect parent is actually really good for the children because it prompts them to be resilient and, and kind of like self-empowered. And I mean, I don't know if I use that to justify, <laughs> to justify, you know, me focusing on say Galar or other things, but I do think that good, it, that's the best piece of advice. There's being a perfect parent is maybe not even good for your child. You know, what you've got to do be a good enough parent make them feel safe and that kind of takes the pressure off you know so this sense of juggling isn't so extreme you know like if I'm being a good enough parent to my kids that gives me time to be a sort of good enough you know editor at Galar and I think that's a much more realistic thing to aim for than being perfect you know all round yeah and maybe um, that applies to just about everything in life really totally. Totally. And I mean, something that is really great about being a parent in the country is because of the space, the kids, I think I give my kids here a lot more freedom than I would if we lived in the city. You know, I'd just be much more worried about strangers and cars and, you know, um, not that it's impossible. I mean, you read about people who do give their kids independence, even though they live in New York City, but here it's amazing. You know, they can they can just drive off in their little on their motorbikes or in the buggies and then I don't see them until dinner and I think what they learn in that time you know they don't have mobile phones and what they learn is that they are capable of being able to do things like if mm. the fire is flat they walk home if they forget their hat they get sunburned you know and I, I just feel like that is a real um that's much easier to do in the country and I think that that makes for sort of flexible resilient kids yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. What advice you would give to someone who wants to start something new? Well, I don't know if it's healthy advice, but it would definitely be throw yourself into it and focus and be prepared to sacrifice other things. Like mm. I, don't, I think when you're starting something new, it takes a huge amount of energy and, you know, you've got to like push the boulder and get it going and, you know, that means you might not 
go on holidays or you might, you know, just be prepared. If you really want to do it, do it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? The best advice, and I have, uh, well, I actually have three quotes by this writer, Anne Lamott, up above my desk. Um, she, she's American, get her books. She's amazing. She wrote the seminal writing book, Bird by Bird, and its tagline is some instructions on writing and life. And I think even if you're not interested in writing, this book is so worthwhile reading because it's just, it's full of such wisdom. Anyway, one of her quotes is, she talks about how writing a novel is like driving at night and, you know, driving a car at night and you can only see as far as your headlights can shine, but you can make the whole trip that way. You know, and isn't that, that's just it for life. Like you can have these dreams, you can, you know, plan these goals, but really it's okay if you just see the next step. So you just do the next step, the next steps, and, and you'll get there or you'll at least get somewhere. And I think that, I don't know, it's, you know, all these like business plans and budgets and stuff. I mean, I think they're probably important to do, but you don't even know where you're going to end up. You don't have to have it all worked out. You can just set your eye on the prize and just take it step by step as far as the headlights can see. Yeah, no, that's great. Because I think sometimes you can look too far ahead and be completely overwhelmed and think, oh, I could never get to that place. So yeah, just that one step at a time is much more achievable. Yeah. So having pulled off such an incredible success with Galab, has this opened up other opportunities for you for something else? Uh, I'm totally committed to Galab at the moment. So yeah. I think the opportunities that are really exciting me at the moment is how to grow Galab. And we've got some really cool things on the horizon. We are... I mean, we're, we're do, going to do a book with Murdoch Books, which would be I'm really excited about. <clears throat> and we're, we're opening up a store in Tenterfield, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which will be really fun, I think. I have no idea retail, but that'll be really funny. And, you know, I really want to sort of um, bring, kind of create a human version of the magazine. So mm -hmm. that's a great way to kind of, to pop up exhibitions of artists we've featured or cooking classes with, you know, I just think it, I'm craving human connection. I love digital stuff and I think it's amazing, especially living, you know, remotely, but I am craving human connection. So I hope that's what the, the store can be. Um, but we're also working on a kind of digital world for Galar and that's really interesting to me thinking about, how we can create a digital world for Galar that doesn't cannibalise the print magazine. You know, to me, they're very different experiences and it doesn't work to me when magazines have their print and then just upload the same stuff on digital. Like, that's that that's not what I want to do with Galar. So it's sort of, that's a really, that could be a big project. And, I mean, so much so, I'm actually thinking of um, hiring an editor for the magazine you know, a really experienced professional editor for the magazine to sort of take that role and then I can focus on the kind of business development side, which I'm just really excited about at the moment. So, I, I mean, you know, who knows, but I've got big dreams for Galara and I'm actually not even thinking about anything else at the moment. Congratulations and um, all the best for, for these new ventures. Thank you so much, Sally-Ann. Thanks for having me.